I don't know about you, but I have felt almost slightly numb over the last few days. I haven't wanted to watch trash TV, which I normally thrive on. <laughs> I'm drawn to programme after programme about Her Majesty the Queen. I feel I have to be part of it. I can't escape it and I don't want to, however repetitive the programmes are. End of an era is a cliché, but the death of Her Majesty is definitely the end of an era, if anything is. I was four when she came to the throne, so I can't really remember life before her. I only remember that because uh, I took part in a fancy dress competition where I was dressed in the most amazing bumblebee outfit that you can possibly imagine. Even with little antennae and a great big sort of ballooning top and brown everything else, felt shoes in brown with curled up toes and wings of course. My mother must have spent hours making it and I felt elation and deflation in quick succession when I won the fancy dress competition in our mill village. It was two shillings and sixpence, half a crown, which apparently is about four pounds nowadays. Uh, that was the elation. The deflation came when my mother said, well, that's mine. <laughs> <laughs> so I can't remember life without her, before her. Keir Starmer, I thought, put it rather wonderfully when speaking in Parliament, he said that she was, for many of us, the still point in our lives. And I thought that was, for me, the truth. We know that she was a woman of deep faith. I loved it when, in the service in St Paul's Cathedral, the Bishop of London, in her sermon, reminded us of those wonderful words in Deuteronomy. The eternal God is thy refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. That certainly was the Queen's belief. The eternal God found her and became her refuge. And the two stories that we've just heard read to us by Richard pretty much have the same theme. In preparing for this sermon I accidentally came across uh, an article by an American theologian called Amanda Renault, and she pointed out something about these parables that had never, it never really sort of clicked with me before and I thought it was very interesting. It's this, in the parable about the shepherd who says at the end, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost, Jesus ends by saying, just so I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. But as Miss Renault pointed out, the sheep wasn't a sinner. Sheep can't sin. And even more with the parable about the lost coin where the woman says, rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so, says Jesus, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It wasn't the coin's fault that it was lost 
it was the woman's fault. She actually says so. A coin cannot be described as a sinner. So what are these parables about when Jesus makes this sort of link across? Jesus tells these parables and then explains to the scribes and Pharisees who are criticizing him for parting with sinners. Just so, I tell you. In other words, these stories are about searching for the lost, finding the lost, and then celebrating with a party. Searching, finding, and celebrating. The shepherd and the woman absolutely refuse to give up until they have found what they are searching for. And in exactly the same way Jesus is saying, he searches out the lost and will not give up however much it costs him until they are found. These parables are about the dogged persistence of God, our God of love, in seeking out the lost. The sheep isn't guilty. The coin isn't guilty. And when we look further in the Gospels, we can see that Jesus seems very reluctant to want to lay guilt on the sinners that he meets. Jesus seems to like parties. He tells these stories about parties. The shepherd rejoices, inviting his friends and neighbours around for a party. One of the commentators speculated whether or not at the party they had lamb cutlets, but perhaps we'd better uh, run over that one. And the woman does exactly the same thing. Then look at Luke, chapter 5, the calling of Levi, who we often call Matthew. It says, Levi followed the call and then held a great banquet. That's the words, a great banquet for Jesus at his house. In Luke 19, Zacchaeus, the little man, the tax collector, hated by everybody, climbs up a tree because he's little to see Jesus. And Jesus turns, when he gets to the point, he looks up and says to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house. So he came down and welcomed him gladly to a party. On no less than four other occasions, Luke reports meals in which Jesus is criticised by the scribes and the Pharisees for his relationship with sinners. But Jesus never once comments on the sinner's behaviour. There is no condemnation. Jesus certainly seeks to bring sinners to repentance, but not once in those stories does he actually scold or correct a sinner. No, he eats with them. No condemnation there. Best of all, perhaps, in John chapter 8, there is a woman caught in adultery and everybody's about to stone her. And Jesus says, let the one of you without sin throw the first stone. And then he tactfully looks away and the crowd disappears. And when he looks back again, he says, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. There is no condemnation. And finally, think of Jesus on the cross, praying for forgiveness for those who are killing him and blessing the thief 
next to him on the cross. There's no condemnation there either. And that's shown even more clearly in the parable that just comes after the two which uh, Richard read to us. And the three were put together deliberately by Luke. There's the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the next one is the lost son. Yeah, the prodigal son, as we normally call him. And that is very much on the same theme. In that parable, the younger son, realizing what a complete fool he has been, and in a few years has spent all the inheritance, says to himself, I will set out. I will go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And Luke tells us, when he was still a long way off, his father saw him. His father was filled with compassion for him. His father ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And looking at the two previous parables, I think the conversation between them probably went like this. The son, father, I have sinned again. Uh, quick, bring the robe and put it on him. Listen, father, I've sinned against heaven and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Father, I'm trying to tell you I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer... Shush, 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 shush. Never mind that. Hey, you over there. Kill the fatted calf and let's have a feast and celebrate. The son, Father, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father says, what? No longer worthy? Of course you are. Look, everyone, this son of mine, who was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. Again, no condemnation. Jesus, like the shepherd and the woman, lovingly searches out the lost and will not give up until we are found. According to Wikipedia, every day about 150,000 people die on this planet. On the 6th of September this year, one of that 150,000 was a woman called Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor. And she was no less or more loved by God than the other 149,999. She had been found by the Lord, her shepherd. She knew all her life and now knows with absolute certainty that there is no condemnation. To paraphrase Charles Wesley, and it's just the same for us. No condemnation, now she dreads. Jesus and all in him is hers. Alive in him, her living head, and clothed in divine righteousness, bold she approaches the eternal throne and can claim slightly differently from us, another better crown through Christ, her own.
Amen.